asatoma satgamaya tamasoma jyotirgamaya ritjorma mritamgamaya avir avir maiti rudra yakte dakshinamukam Tenamam Pahinityam Om Shanti 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 From the unreal lead us to the real. From darkness lead us unto light. From death lead us to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Good morning, and I'm glad to see you here. I know it's a marathon and not so easy to get across town even, so um, welcome. Today we're going to discuss the pursuit of happiness. Uh, In this country, that is considered to be one of our inalienable rights, and it's right up there with life and liberty. As Thomas Jefferson put it, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what is happiness? You might call it a sense of well-being, an optimism, or a meaningfulness in life. It has many levels that it can be read on. But whatever it is, we know we want it, and somehow it's good. We all want to be happy. Pascal once said, man wishes to be happy, only to be happy, and cannot desire not to be so. We share this desire with all living beings. Everyone, every being, wishes to be happy. Well-being is a state that underlies all else, according to Buddhist thought. Joy is the spring of happiness. Often we look outside for our happiness in material things, but we have to remember that whatever we have materialistically, we can lose. As Bart Trihari says, life is like a wave upon the waters. Youth only remains a few days. Wealth is a fancy of the mind. It immediately vanishes. Enjoyment is like a flash of lightning among dark clouds. Our most beloved one is only for a moment. Knowing this, O man, give your heart to Brahman to cross this ocean of life. Going in search in lower regions, going to the skies, traveling through all the worlds, this is but the fickleness of the mind. Ah, friend, you never remember the Lord who resides within you. How can you get happiness? Usually, happiness is wed to sorrow. It's one of the pairs of opposites. They go together. One follows the other. 
I remember even an old Bob Dylan song where he said, when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. This is sort of the idea in renunciation. But do we have to give up joy in order to avoid sorrow? Desire nothing. Give up all desires and be happy, say the great teachers. William Blake, in his poem called Eternity, tells us if we try to hold on to our joys, we actually can destroy them. He who binds himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. There's a greater joy than any material joy that objects can give us, and it's inside of every one of us. And this joy is unending. The sages tell us there's a transcendental joy or bliss, and all the little joys that we have here are mere reflections of this greater joy. According to Buddhism, wrong perceptions are the ground of all our sorrows and afflictions. Anger, fear, all these are reactions to our wrong perceptions, and as as such, they are a cause of suffering. Thich Nhat Hanh says, throw away all these wrong perceptions. What is happiness? Throw away the very idea that you have happiness. This very conception of yours may be the cause of your unhappiness. You have to throw away all preconceived ideas. This isn't just letting go. It's something stronger, according to him. You have to actually throw it away. We have to throw away our preconceptions. Even Kierkegaard said, A man who has a physical being is always turned toward the outside, thinking his happiness lies outside of him. And finally, he turns inward and discovers that the source is within him. One has to realize himself in order to open the store of unalloyed happiness, which is within, says Ramana Maharshi. The Upanishads also tell us that the senses were made turning outward, so we seek our happiness outside. Right now on the internet, there's so many talks and instructions on how to be happy. I recently went there and looked at a lot of them, and looked at a lot of the TED Talks. It's very interesting, actually. Man has been discussing this for centuries, and many useful ideas have been presented there, and they've been proven effective in many ways. Yet we'll find that what we want, the lasting happiness, the peace that pathes all understanding, is only within us. We have to go to a deeper level. We're all searching for happiness, yet depression is on the rise in our modern society, and so are drugs such as Prozac and other antidepressants. People are taking massive amounts of drugs to try to relieve their suffering. Is it possible to go beyond our suffering? Let us see what some of these psychologists say and the self-help gurus, and even spiritual teachers suggest. Here's one set of suggestions for happiness. 
The first thing they say is, don't worry, choose to be happy. You have to make a conscious effort to be happy, to boost your happiness. You have to want it. In his book, The Conquest of Happiness, published way back in the 1930s, Bertrand Russell had this to say, Happiness is not, except in very rare cases, something that drops into the mouth like a ripe fruit. Happiness must be, for most women and men, an achievement rather than a gift of the gods. And in this achievement, effort, both inward and outward, must play a great part. Today's psychologists who study happiness agree. The intention to be happy, they put first in the list of the nine choices of happy people. And what does that mean? It means the active desire and commitment to be happy. It's a decision to consciously choose the attitudes and behavior that lead to happiness over unhappiness. So here we are again in the pursuit of happiness. We want to be happy. So the second thing they say we need is to cultivate gratitude. There's a book called Authentic Happiness, and in it the psychologist encourages the readers to perform a daily gratitude exercise. This involves making lists of things for which you are grateful, and they say it's very helpful. It shifts you away from bitterness and despair and promotes happiness. So think about all the things in your life that you have that really are gifts. Loving kindness also changes your mind, just as gratitude changes your mind. They've actually shown in studies that it changes the waves in your mental thinking so that it becomes easier to continue thinking in these lines of gratitude and loving kindness. You can practice these things with meditation. First, change your mind and then change your outlook. One teacher says, it's not happiness that makes us grateful. It's gratefulness that makes us happy. To be grateful is to value something that's freely given. When we get something that's valuable, we become happy. Every moment is a gift. And the most valuable thing is that we can be grateful always. Opportunity is in everything, and it's the gift. This is the key to happiness. Even when something bad happens to us, we can still rise to the opportunity through patience and forbearance or forgiveness. What is the method to live gratefully? According to one Buddhist monk, it is get quiet and contemplate. See the richness richness of life and open your heart. Nothing makes us more happy than giving. If you are grateful, you're not fearful. And if you're not fearful, you're not violent. And if you are not violent, the happiness within you will manifest itself. The third thing they suggest is forgiveness, foster forgiveness. Holding a grudge and nursing grievances can affect us physically as well as mentally. 
One way to stop these kind of feelings is to foster forgiveness. And this reduces the power of bad events to create bitterness and resentment. There are techniques that can be learned for practicing forgiveness. In one book called The Five Steps to Forgiveness, he, the um, psychologist offers a five-step process he calls REACH. R, recall first the hurt. E, empathize. Try to understand it from the perpetrator's point of view. A, be altruistic by recalling the time in your life when you were forgiven. C, commit to putting your forgiveness into words. You can do this either in a letter or to the person or in your, a journal. Finally, try H, to hold on to forgiveness. Don't dwell on your anger, hurt, or desire for vengeance. These are all very practical ways to foster forgiveness. The alternative to forgiveness is mulling over a transgression. This causes chronic stress and anxiety. We're hurting ourselves when we continuously think over something that hurt us when we cannot forgive. Resentment only makes us unhappy. The hurt becomes deeper, and the samskara becomes more difficult to change. Mother Teresa once said, forgive and forget. To really forget an injury that's been given is a very good thing, and it's not easy to practice. The final step in forgiveness, however, is never to see that there was anything to forgive at all to give unconditioned love. In one country and western song, it says thinking about death helps us to see how to forgive now. Quote, And I loved deeper and spoke sweeter and gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Meditation on death is also a very valuable spiritual practice which has been taught throughout the ages in many different religions. When we think of it in this way, things take on a very different significance in our lives. Our whole perspective changes, and our actions reflect this change. We realize that most things that we get very excited about don't matter at all. This is being suggested again and again by modern thinkers and practitioners. Ron Hansen, who a neurologist and Buddhist practitioner who I have mentioned before, points out that practicing meditation on gratitude actually changes these brain patterns. He discusses things such as neuroplasticity and the way we learn and unlearn reactions. And of course, this goes right along with our Vedantic thinking of samskaras and character building. We can, in fact, change who we are and how we react by practicing forgiveness and gratitude, love, compassion, and other virtues. The practice of yama and niyama listed in the Yoga Sutras all stress the transformation of our very character through the practices of such virtues as ahimsa and truthfulness. Four, 
counteract negative thoughts and feelings. In The Happiness Hypothesis, another book, one author compares the mind to riding an elephant. The elephant represents powerful thoughts and feelings, mostly unconscious, that drive your behavior. The man, though much weaker, can exert control over the elephant, just just as you can exert control over negative thoughts and feelings. The key is commitment to doing the things necessary to retrain the elephant. And the evidence suggests there's a lot you can do. It just takes work. In our literature, the mind is compared to a monkey, which is drunk. Not only is it drunk, but it's been stung by bees. It's totally out of control. We have to control the mind, and as Arjuna says in the Bhagavad Gita, It's like the wind and very difficult to control. There are aids taught in both yoga and positive psychology. For example, you can practice meditation, rhythmic breathing, yoga or relaxation techniques to quell anxiety and promote serenity. You can learn to recognize and challenge thoughts about having been inadequate and helpless If you can learn techniques for identifying these negative thoughts as they come up in your mind, then it's easier to challenge them. We've been told sometimes it helps just to watch the mind, because when you do this, negative thoughts just seem to disappear. They don't want you to look at them too closely. It's almost like they're embarrassed to put in their appearance. They're so petty. And here again, the Yoga Sutra tells us to counteract a negative thought or feeling with a good one. Replace hatred with love. Mind is stronger than outside. Inner conditions can be stronger than the outer ones. Only control of the mind can go beyond. And the Kata Upanishad tells us that the senses are like restive horses. The mind is the rain and the buddhi is the charioteer. We can sharpen our buddhi, our intellect, and control the senses. Generosity makes someone happy and helps to get rid of the destructive emotions. It's conducive to well-being, and they've proven this. Love, compassion, gratitude, all these influence the mind. Try to be aware of the mirror of the mind. Pure awareness is not tainted. All emotions are changing. Let them pass. The general antidote to emotion is just look at them, and they will disappear over time. The mind can be transformed or changed. There is such a thing as neuroplasticity. We can change our minds and our samskaras. I've found if I'm thinking negatively about someone, it's helpful to remember one good thing that they've done. Whenever the negative thought about them comes up to my mind, I try to think of that one good thought. It's very important to generate a good attitude, a good heart, as much as possible. From this, happiness in both short-term and long-term for yourself and for others will come. That's a quote from the Dalai Lama. 
he also says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Number five, remember, money can't buy happiness. We've all heard this many times. Research does show that at the very lowest poverty level, some money does help. But after you get to a certain level, it doesn't help anymore. We keep thinking, if I have more things, I'll be more happy. But this isn't true. In fact, they're beginning to discover that living more simply actually makes people more happy. It can actually bring peace. Less can be more. Nor is success the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you are doing, you will be happy and successful. That was Albert Schweitzer's quote. I did see one very interesting TED Talk recently, though, where he said, I've heard money can't buy happiness, but I'm here to tell you that's not true. It's how you're spending it. They've done studies where they required people, they gave people money and they required them to spend it on other people. And they found that this actually brings them happiness. Not only that, but it isn't the amount of money they give. It can be a small amount or a big amount. The result is still the same. If you use it for other people, you become happy. And it's cross-cultural. They tried it in many different cultures, and it's true in all of them. What does this tell us? It tells us that doing something for someone else is actually beneficial. Of course, this is truly Swami Vivekananda. When you help someone else, you're helping yourself because we're all one. He says, give, give, give. That's the one thing. In one place, he actually goes so far as to say, unselfishness is God. I know in my own case, I found that if I'm feeling very depressed or tomasic, one of the most effective and quickest things I can do is go out and do something for somebody else. I immediately feel better. Happiness is the only good, and the time to be happy is now. And the place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is to make others so. To quote Ron Hansen again, doing good to others can make us happy. And this is what Swamiji's been telling us. Number six, foster friendship. There are few better antidotes to unhappiness than close friendships with people who care about you. One Australian study found that in people over 70, the people who had the longest network, the strongest network of friends lived much longer, were social beings, were interconnected. Our fixation and focus on the self has made us unhappy. We are actually happier if we focus on others. Our increasingly individualistic society suffers from impoverished social connections, which some psychologists believe is the cause of today's epidemic levels of depression. 
our increasing need for medications and drugs to make us feel better are not helping the situation. Thich Nhat Hanh says, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. This brings us to the idea that we may also wish for others to be happy. This may be one of the most healing things that we can do. A sincere prayer for others helps us. This is altruism working for the well-being of others. This is one of Swami Vivekananda's main ideas. Our relationship to others actually helps us and makes us happy. Empathy only is not enough to make us happy. We have to change our thoughts and our minds by loving thoughts and then change our action. It's been shown that individuals can change through compassion and meditation. The brain itself does change. Cooperation can actually be taught even to children. We can change ourselves and reach out to others. This is what the second ideal of the Ramakrishna order, Jagat Hitaya Cha, is about, for the highest welfare of all, for one's own liberation and for the highest welfare of all beings. Seven, engage in meaningful activities. People are seldom happier, say psychologists, than when they're in the flow. This is a new thought that's out there, and there are books on this subject. In this state, your mind becomes thoroughly absorbed in a meaningful task that challenges your abilities. Study has shown that experiences make us happier than possessions. To get more out of life, we have to put more into it. Each of the flow-producing activities requires an initial investment of attention before it begins to become enjoyable. A state of flow, according to some people, is the secret of happiness. You get into this state when you become one with the work itself, totally in the present moment. Concentration on the creative process where you seem to be separate from what you're doing and where it all comes natural, naturally to you. Be aware of this joy and find out what you are creating and the sense of mission. Then time will disappear, and it becomes work for its own sake, as was suggested in the Bhagavad Gita. It turns out that happiness can be a matter of choice, not just luck. Some people are lucky enough to, put, to possess genes that actually foster happiness. Research suggests that genetics does play a role in our levels of subjective well-being. So some, some of us may start at a disadvantage. On top of that, between unexpected tra- tragedies and daily stress, environmental factors can bring our moods up or down. There's substantial evidence that all this plays a big role in happiness. Research has shown that identical twins tend to have similar levels of happiness. 
in identical twins, one twin's happiness is a better predictor of the other twin's current or future happiness than educational achievement or income. Parents pass on both these genes and the environments. There seem to be a certain level of happiness that individuals have generally to which they gravitate. That level depends on the person and situations that he or she is in. But even if genetics has a big influence, that doesn't mean that anybody is biologically stuck. The environment is quite important for psychological well-being, too. But in this day and age, we have an increasing dependence on these pharmaceuticals to make us feel happy. One other point that many people made is that just to act happy helps to become happiness. It's almost like if you pretend you're happy, you actually become happy. Now, this is very interesting. One researcher compares happy and unhappy people, and under, he says there's a 40% solution here. This is the degree of happiness that is within our power to change. You won't see the results from these activities right away, like anything important. You have to work at it. It's the way we relate to ourselves, kindly or critically, what we're thinking about. They even suggest the power of smiling can actually predict how long you're going to live. <laughs> smiling makes you more happy. I'm always reminded of St. Teresa of Avila's statement, a sad nun is a bad nun. <laughs> Everyone needs to find a, a way to be in the present moment, to find a restorative state that allows them to put down their burdens. But what about right now? What can we do to make ourselves feel more positive? If you're seeking to increase your sense of happiness, try mindfulness techniques, many suggest. Mindfulness means being present in the moment and observing it in a non-judgmental way. Meditation helps us better to manage our reactions to stress and recover more quickly from disturbing events. This is the key to happiness. One study took people in high-stress jobs and taught them meditation for eight weeks. They felt happier after and even remembered what had brought them to the job in the first place, what they liked about it, which they had totally forgotten. There's a Tibetan lama dubbed the happiness, happiest man in the world. How did he get that way? Practice, he says. Observing his behavior, it was noticed that he recovered quickly from upsets. And this is one way that science measures a happy temperament. If you start to get upset, let go of the negative thought, deal with the problem, and then let go of that. Be careful what you think. According to one study, the longest-running study of memory and aging, Expecting memory to decline in old age actually contributes to memory loss over time. So if you think you're getting older, you probably are. <laughs> Happiness is the man who has broken the change which hurt the mind. 
and has given up worrying once and for all. Now that's from a very ancient Greek philosopher. Holy Mother once said she never worried. She didn't have time because she was doing japa all the time. There just wasn't space for those negative thoughts. We're all shaped by what we think. We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. That's from the Buddha. Many say that love is the only thing that really matters. Love is the key to happiness and a fulfilling life. One author says there are two pillars of happiness. One is love, and the other is finding a way of coping with life that doesn't push love away. But what do we mean by love? His study's most important finding is that the only thing that matters in life is relationships. A man could have a successful career, money, and a good physical health, but without supportive, loving relationships, he won't be happy. Happiness is only the cart. Love is the horse, he says. Joy is connection. The more areas of your life where you can make connection, the better. Even Holy Mother once said, the purpose of life is fulfilled when you bring joy to another. We find increasing narcissism in our culture. People are so individualistic that more and more all they worry about is themselves. In our times, we find many have lost connection with other people. They've become more focused on the little self. We have to learn to see our connection with all of life. There's a sort of movement from narcissism to connection. And part of this shift has to do with the way that we deal with challenges. There is an importance in praise, adoration, and saying such simple things as thank you and giving the smile. One secret is that replacing narcissism is single-minded focus on one's own emotional and perceived problems with with mature coping defenses. Think of the other. Mother Teresa had a really terrible childhood, and her inner spiritual life was also painful. But she had a highly successful life by caring about other people. Creative expression is another way to deal with challenges and achieve meaning and well-being in life. The secret of Beethoven being able to cope with misery through his art was expressed when he wrote Ode to Joy. Beethoven was able to make a connection with his music. Happiness is love, full stop one psychologist tells us. And spiritual people, speaking from a higher level, might agree. We seek beauty and someone to love outside ourselves and are often disappointed. I'm not saying that human love is not real or fulfilling. We love each other because we see the spark of the divine in the other. It's not for the sake of the wife that the husband loves the wife. It is for the sake of the Atman, 
that is within the wife. It is this spark which makes beauty all around us. But I tell you, anyone who's had a vision of God knows that the beauty there is thousands of times more beautiful than even the most beautiful human faith. The Bhagavad Gita says it shines like a million suns. In nature, we see beauty. Nature helps us heal. People who face a natural scene, looking out a window when ill, recover more quickly than those who face a brick wall. Illumination came to Brother Lawrence when he saw the sight of a leafless tree in midwinter and it stirred him to reflect that leaves would be renewed and flowers and fruits would appear on those bare branches. This revealed to him the presence and power of God lying hidden in all of creation. The spiritual awakening that he experienced sustained him throughout his whole life. In all of us, the power of God is lying hidden, waiting for this awakening. We have to discover the center of divine consciousness in us and call forth that dormant power. Just watch the rising sun and your heart feels naturally uplifted and joyful because we have all experienced rebirth and awakening in our lives in one form or another. The sun itself has been worshipped as a symbol of God throughout time because of light and its nourishing qualities. The famous Gayatri Matra invokes the sun. We're surrounded by such symbols, or what are called pratikas, everywhere. These are symbols of God that are right before us. Swamiji tells us the greatest of all temples is the human body itself. The Brahma Sutras tells us to meditate on the light behind the eyes. Everywhere we can see the face of God before us. But where are we looking for our love? If we look only outside for our love to be fulfilled, we will never find happiness. There is the broader and deeper kind of love or happiness, being true to your inner self or manifesting the divine spirit. This kind of happiness is nurtured and experienced from within. And it's more than just a good feeling. It is cultivated through contentment, satisfaction, a sense of meaning, loving connections in life, and it's very personal. We can experience this happiness even when there are negative stresses and sources of unhappiness present. And if we find this happiness within, then we will also be able to see it in front of us. Swamiji says, Open your eyes and see him. He says, first we renounce, and then the world itself becomes deified. Live in the present is another advice given by psychologists and spiritual men alike. Do we spend too much time on the past and, or worrying about the future? Is that making us miss the essential happiness right now? Mindfulness helps you to go home to the present, and every time you go there, recognize the condition of happiness that you have. Happiness comes. Swamiji says the first sign that you're becoming religious 
is that you're becoming cheerful. To the yogi, everything is bliss. Every human face that he sees brings happiness to him. If you have a clouded face, do not go out that day. Shut yourself up in your room. What right do you have to carry this disease out into the world? Swamiji says in one place. One day when I was walking home, I was tired going up the hill. I had a frown on my face. One of the sisters was coming down. She said, oh, you look so tired. And I realized, why am I doing this? Why am I bringing this out into the world? An unhappy face. I should be smiling. (laughs) And actually, it helps you if you do. You feel immediately more cheerful. When we can live in the depths of the present moment without regretting the past or worrying about the future, you will become content. The joy of the Atman is always within us, and it can be released at any time by breaking down the barriers of desire and fear which we have built around it. According to Patanjali, as the result of real contentment, one gains supreme happiness. Gratefulness is the key to joy. Gratefulness encompasses more than just thankfulness. Definitions vary, but most include the idea of being present in the moment, the full response to a given moment and all it contains. There's a Buddhist monk who says, This moment is the greatest gift imaginable. It offers us the opportunity to come fully alive here and now, Grateful living is a spiritual practice. He calls his method, stop, look, and go. Stop every so often, even briefly, so as not to rush through life. Look means that you use your senses to be open and enjoy the moment. Suddenly we become aware of countless gifts we used to take for granted, he says. Go, he says, make use of a given opportunity. And if we can shift our lens to become more cognizant of what's happening for real in the space around us and among people around us, as opposed to what we're worried about, then we're set up for more happiness. I often reflect that there are infinite number of moments in my life, and this one has never been here before, nor will it ever be here again. A daily mindfulness meditation Practice is a big help. Jack Cornfield likes to say, there's signs in Las Vegas casinos which read, you must be present to win. (laughs) And it's the same in living our life. The more I'm present for my life, the more alive I feel. Sometimes if we can just pause and look at the beauty around us, it's helpful. I remember one time looking at a persimmon sitting alone on a light blue windowsill and really seeing it for the first time. The beauty of the colors was entrancing. The blue and the orange were suddenly exquisitely beautiful in the silent of the moment. It lost earthly beauty and became what it always was, an expression of joy. I remember when I was living in Varanasi, looking at the Ganges and the night sky over the garden outside where I was staying, and thinking how 
Even though I was on the other side of the world from where I had lived before, these things in nature were much the same. Many of the flowers were the same in the garden, even though they had different names. And the beauty of the water and the sky were the same. The sounds were different. The sound of the city, the namas and call to prayer were foreign and exotic. Yet looking up at the night sky, I remembered how in one of his Isho Upanishad classes, Swami Ashokananda said, roll up the sky like a scroll and see the bright white light of the face of God behind it all. Swami Vivekananda said in his God in Everything lecture that first we renounce and then we deify the world. First find that joy that's inside and then we see it everywhere. We see God himself in and through everything. As one song says, O Lord, why hast thou created this world? What joy impelled thee? From whence came this creation? The sun, the moon, and the stars. All this is the Lord himself in unbounded bliss of play. All this is the Lord himself in unbounded bliss of play. The sages tell us the only real happiness, long-lasting, eternal happiness, is found in God-realization As the Bhagavad Gita says, utterly quiet, made clean of passion, the mind of the yogi knows that Brahman. His bliss is the highest. Released from evil, his mind is constant in contemplation. The way is easy. Brahman has touched him. That bliss is boundless. Bitter toil at first, but at last, what sweetness, what sweetness. The end of sorrow. Thank you.